calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. You're listening to The Pocket and the Pendant by Mark Jeffrey, read by the author. Produced by Mark Jeffrey in association with Michael and Evo's Dragon Page and Podiobooks.com. The full book is available in Podiobook format at Podiobooks.com. The full print version is available at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, Lulu.com, or from the book's website and blog at www. Dot pocketandpendant.com Eleven Planet Furious The children awoke after a delicious fourteen hours of sleep. Between the spectacularly comfortable beds, the crisp clean ocean night air wafting through the room in the hypnotic white noise of surf crashing against the rocks far below. They had all slipped into a much-needed near-comatose sleep. If they really were inside an enfoldment of the dream time, as Enki had said, then it was also a potent soporific indeed. When Max first opened his eyes, it was well into the morning. His bed seemed to hug him like it didn't want him to get up. The thick cloud-like goose-feather covers and pillows encased him in a cocoon of security and warmth. He was sure that Enki or the magician had peered into the room several times during the night, watching over them, though he didn't specifically recall seeing them. It was the first time he had actually felt safe in a very long time. Their street clothes had been cleaned and laid out for them like little men and women on a dresser near the beds. Although they beckoned to be put back on, Max groaned inwardly at the thought. It meant they would have to leave this place and re-enter the real world, and face their task with Jadith. When Max rose from his bed, he saw his and Casey's backpacks near the clothes. When he opened his, he saw that it had been repacked with more food and snacks. His head still swam from the heady conversation of the previous night. There had been so much to take in. The dream time, Umphalos, Nibiru, it all swirled in his head. And none of the answers were at all like how he had imagined they would be. "'Hey!' Casey called to him. "'Good morning!' Max nodded self-consciously, feeling his hair sticking up and making him look like a porcupine head. Heya. Ian poked his head up and then Sasha popped out of her bed. Hey. I slept like crazy, Max said. Me too, Casey replied. Sasha nodded. Wild dreams. So, what did you all think of last night? Ian asked. A lot to take in, Max replied. Kind of scary, though, especially for me. Well, no wonder Jadith loves having humans as slaves so much, Sasha remarked quietly. 
unconsciously rubbing the back of her hand where her slave glyph was tattooed. So, Max, at the risk of sounding like the inferior slave race, what do you think we should do now about Jadith and the Pendant? Stop it, Max laughed at the joke. I don't know, but I think Inky has something in mind. He does indeed, Enki said, and they all turned, startled to see him suddenly standing in the doorway. Get cleaned up and dressed. Breakfast is waiting for you downstairs. I'll tell you more while you eat. Hurry up! You've got a big day ahead of you. Breakfast was served on a stone terrace built into the side of the tower overlooking the sea. Like the beds, the meal itself was top-rate. They had their fill of steaming, heaping plates of spiced scrambled egg whites, bacon, hash browns, bread, butter, and jam. It was cooked and served by a short man with a pointed white beard, wearing a white suit and a white turban. I suppose that would be the black magician, Max said. Of course, Enki snorted, annoyed with the question like it was stupid. Ian leaned over and whispered to Max, Good, at least we're catching on. For a moment I thought he was going to say that was the red magician. They both struggled to contain their laughter, but Ian didn't quite succeed, and orange juice came squirting out of his nose. The kids ate greedily while Enki spoke. After breakfast, it is time for you to be on your way. But I thought you said there was no time here, Sasha protested. Couldn't we stay just a little while longer? I mean, it won't matter, right? We could stay for weeks and still go back to the same moment we left. No, I can't allow it. That crow I shot down last night will be back, and this time it will bring help. It's too dangerous for you to remain here. But I thought you killed it, Max said. We heard it plop into the water. That doesn't matter. It wasn't really a crow, and you can't kill something like that with just an arrow. What was it then, Max asked. An archon. But don't ask me what that is, because there isn't time to go into it, Enki replied, eyes scanning the sky. Put it this way. My isle is constantly under a kind of attack. Because of my knowledge of the dream time, they've been trying to do me in for quite some time now. And now they're really annoyed with me, because I've told you about the dream time. They don't like people knowing about it. They like the veil to remain intact. I have my enemies in struggles, just as you do. Enki smiled. But fortunately for you, you have me to help you with your struggles. I'm not so lucky in mine, save for the help of the magicians. Enki nodded at the strange man dressed in white, eyes full of deep gratitude. The black magician bowed low. So now, to the task at hand. The one to which you four have unwittingly been appointed. The Pendant. The pendant was hidden perfectly. It is quite literally impossible to find. No matter how many men look, no matter how long they look, even if they look under every stone and in every hidden place on the earth, no matter what theater or art they bring to bear, still they will not find it. Even if you knew the exact location where I hid it, still you could not find it. It is impossible for anyone to find. That is, until you four go and get it. Yeah, we overheard that Philemon guy tell something like that to Jadith. Max shivered. She didn't like hearing that very much. <laughs> I should think not, Enki smiled. So that's why, after five years, Jadith and Siren still can't find it, Sasha said. Even with the pocket and a horde of centurions looking everywhere for it. Enki nodded. But how can that be? How can it be impossible for everyone else to find, but simple for us? Max asked. Enki's eyes twinkled. In time, he said deliberately. In time, you will see for yourself. Max sulked, another secret he would not be told. But if that's true, then why don't we just not go there at all, Sasha asked. That way no one can ever find it, and we'll be safe. 
Hanky shook his head. It doesn't work that way, unfortunately. You must go. The time for the pendant to be recovered has arrived, and there's nothing anyone can do about it. And now, to help you on your way, it is time for me to give you a gift. Without warning, Enki reached out and touched Ian on the forehead with his index finger. Ian's eyes flew open wide and his mouth formed a perfect O. He felt a kind of noisome music flood his mind, like opera or chimes. He felt like it was saying something, but it was going by too fast, like a tape fast-forwarding and he couldn't make it out. It was also oddly cold, like someone had slipped a straw right through his head and was pouring a slushy directly into his brain. Then suddenly, Enki withdrew his finger. Ian realized he hadn't been breathing this whole time and sucked in a large breath. His face looked like he had just managed to let go of a live electric wire. Woof! he gasped. What was that? You are a descendant of the black-headed ones. Your brain's language center was designed by me. The inborn language of your forebears is still there, buried in the deep structures of your brain. You can't get at it verbally, but you still can get at it using other means. Call it an upload. Yes, an upload. I uploaded knowledge directly into your brain using the inborn language. But what did you upload? Sasha asked. The exact location of the pendant, and how to pilot a sky chamber. Whoa, cool, Max said. Where is it? Enki took a deep breath. The pendant is under the depths of the Loch Isle. It is a black tarn in the wild highlands of what today is northern Scotland. Though, in the ancient days in which it was hidden, it was a nameless barbaric country, but far away from the land of the mines or any other place my people ventured. Yet merely knowing the location of the pendant signifies nothing. But you four will be able to find it because I have enabled you to. What happens when we get there? Max asked. Enki shook his head. You'll have to discover that for yourself. I have given you all that you require and told you all that I may. The rest is up to you. You are even free to refuse me, of course. Do we get any presents also? Casey asked hopefully. Anki laughed uproariously at that. Well, I was thinking about a heart and a brain and some courage for you three, he said. But I think you already have those things in abundance. However, you will need these. Anki handed them each an ornate silver bracelet with a deep blue gem set into each one. The stones in the bracelet are omphalos. Their power is that they act as amplifiers for other umphalos. So long as you wear them, they will give you even more of whatever another nearby umphalos gives you. But what good will that do us? Max asked. The pocket, Enki said. The chrononomicon. These bracelets will amplify its effect. It will amplify the pocket for you. You'll be moving even faster in time than Jadith's siren and the centurions. They'll be stopped, frozen in time compared to you. They won't be able to touch you. A pocket within the pocket, Ian observed. A super pocket, Sasha said, delighted. Casey shot a vicious glare at her for naming it. After all, she had been the one who had named the original time stop the pocket in the first place. The children all slipped their bracelets on. Max admired his on his wrist, turning it this way and that. Huh, I don't feel anything, Max complained. You won't until you leave. You'll see, Hanky said. Now, there is one more thing to tell you about. When you get to the pyramid, there is a... But then Anki stopped in mid-sentence. Anki suddenly jerked his head side to side as though straining to hear something, and then dashed up the nearest twirling staircase to the roof deck of the tower. What the... Max followed without thinking. 
Ian, Casey, and Sasha were right behind him. When they reached the roof, Enki was already staring into the distance, out over the sea, as though trying to descry something far away. Oh no, Enki moaned, and Max noticed that true fear seemed to be in his eyes, for the first time since they had met him. Not here. Not now. Max followed Enki's gaze. On the horizon of the sea was a black cloud, seeming to well up out of the water like a spout of ink, crossing against the wind. It was only a moment before Max understood that he was seeing a massive murder of crows, a thick swarm of black feathers and black beaks cawing viciously. They were making straight for the tower. The Archons, whatever the heck they were. Get them out of here! Enki howled to the black magician. Now! But, Max protested, Enki hadn't finished telling them what to do. Enki's attention was fully fixed on the horizon, furiously preparing for this new assault. He had his bow in hand again, and was preparing a volley of arrows. Yet there was no way his meager arrows would suffice against such an onslaught. There were just too many of them. They were legion. Go! Enki howled again, angry that none of them had moved yet. At that, the black magician whirled into motion. He threw Max's backpack and Casey hers. Then he tugged on Sasha's sleeve, moving her closer to Casey and Max, and motioned for Ian to get closer as well, as though arranging them for a portrait. Enki launched his first arrow. It struck a crow. It fell. But Enki's defense was pitiable, laughable. There was time for perhaps two or three more shots. The crows were growing louder. The murder now looked like wiggling black smoke, blotting out more and more of the sky. Enki stood, furiously knocking an arrow, bracing for the assault. But, but, but what's going to happen to you two? Casey asked the black magician, fear in her eyes as she watched the flying torrent heading for the tower. The magician cast a glance at Enki and shook his head, looking as though he were hiding underneath his turban. It might have meant that he wouldn't tell her, or that they didn't expect to make it out of this alive. The black magician said something and then clapped his hands. The floor disappeared beneath their feet. They were falling down the same tunnel or wormhole that had first brought them here. But just as they began their descent, Max saw the first black wave of crows break over the side of the tower, even before Enki got off the second shot. It was overwhelming, like the leading edge of a hurricane. Enki disappeared in a single gulp, completely engulfed in a swarm of dark feathers, beaks, and kind. Enki! Max howled, but no sound came out of him. Then Max could see no more. His line of vision dipped beneath the horizon of the portal in his freefall. The opening quickly snapped shut above him, and the children were once again conveyed through the tunnel. Within moments, the children were ejected onto a floor in an altogether different room than the one they had left. The book had evidently been moved since they had entered it. Now, it sat on a table amidst an odd collection of arcane devices and substances in what appeared to be a laboratory. There were vials and powders, dank liquids and stopped bottles, more books, gemstones or jewels which may have been umphalos, and strange, almost medical-looking implements and devices. There were also archaeological odds and ends, tablets with cuneiform, a golden scarab beetle, onks, scepters of gold, decanters and vases, and on a nearby table, resting in a bed of incongruous foam-lastic packing popcorn, was a strange ovular jewel, the singular eye. With a start, Max realized they were in Siren's lab. But no one seemed to be present, they were alone. Max motioned to the others to be silent, but they were already with him, having recognized the singular eye as well. Max instinctively checked his wrist. The 
bracelet Enki had given him was snugly in place. He didn't want to take any chances of losing it now. Together, they made for the door. It opened into a hallway, one they recognized. There was no mistaking the pearly, shimmering, watery light and round, organic passageways. They were still inside of a sky chamber. The foursome tiptoed along the curvature of the passageway. It was completely silent. There were no sounds of any kind. No one was home. In another few moments, they stepped outside the sky chamber and into the murky twilight of the eclipse-lit world. The great lawn spread out before them. The mothership consumed most of the sky on their right like a mountain, and everywhere there were centurions, frozen in time like so many thousands of golden statues. Max rubbed his bracelet and smiled. He sighed in relief. It was working. A pocket within the pocket, Ian marveled. We're using their own pocket trick against them. This is great. Even Casey seemed to lose some of her glumness. They look like a bunch of trophy guys set up on the lawn. Max walked down the plank and up to one of the centurions. He waved at him. He snapped his fingers. Hello! He yelled at him. Boo! Ian said, trying to scare another one. Max poked his with a finger. No response. Ian nodded and upped the ante. He actually kicked his. The golden armor dented. Ian blinked and looked down at it. Whoa! He muttered. Think our pocket powers are also stronger in the super pocket. Max turned also and asked, So, which sky chamber are we taking? There were several parked nearby on the lawn around the mothership, and several more hanging in the air, motionless in time, above them. Ian's eyes glinted. Sirens, of course, he said wickedly. That ought to get his knickers in a bunch. Shotgun, Sasha called out suddenly. No way, Casey barked immediately, looking at Max for support. But Max just shrugged. Well, she did call it. It's the rule. Ian looked a little curiously pleased about this, and the tips of his ears turned red. Casey fumed silently to herself, eyeing Ian now suspiciously. She had caught his reaction and didn't like it much at all. Suddenly, Casey grabbed Max's arm and whisked him away from Ian and Sasha. Come here. I've got to talk to you, she hissed at him under her breath. When they were out of earshot, Max said, What? Casey started right in hotly. Oh, you totally don't see what's going on, do you? What, you're completely blind? What? Max repeated, baffled. Ian likes Sasha, Casey confided. So he's doing what she wants him to do. Max's eyebrows went up. This was a new one on him. Likes her? Like, you mean likes her? He said. Yeah, Casey replied irritably as though Max was missing something obvious. Didn't you see the way he reacted when she called shotgun? Max shook his head. Um, not really, no. Casey shook her head and tried a different tack. Look, what if Sasha is working for Siren? She swallowed as she said the name Siren. I mean, we all thought it was a trap when she showed up and conveniently told us how to find Mr. E, right? Well, what if she's in on it? Siren probably told her exactly what to say to us. Her little story about how she overheard it is probably a lie. She could be spying on us. How do we know she's not? Max considered this for a second and stole a sideways glance at Sasha. She was doing her level best to look the other way and look unconcerned about whatever Casey was up to. Well, I, I don't know, really, but I don't think so. I, I mean, Ace is dead, and, and I don't think Sasha meant for that to happen. He thought for another second. No. She decided for us when she didn't follow Ace into the book. She decided she believed in Ian, in us, and not in Ace, anyway, or even Siren. But Casey was fuming. 
There were hot tears in her eyes now, as though Max were completely missing the point. You're totally siding with her now. Ever since she showed up. You're not even listening to me. It's like I don't exist anymore. What? That's not true at all, Casey. Max snapped. Oh, yes it is, she pouted. I thought you were different. I thought I could count on you. That I finally met someone who wouldn't leave me behind or start ignoring me. You really seem nice. You sure had me fooled. You're just like my father. He left, too. Max was exasperated and completely confused. What? I haven't left. I'm right here. We're trying to stop Jadith and Siren, remember? All of us, together. And we need all the help we can get. Can't you stop being crazy long enough for us to do that? That stung her. As soon as he said it, Max wished he could take it back. Oh, God, I'm really sorry, Casey. I didn't mean that. What, do you like her, too? Casey asked in between tears, looking up at him. No, I mean not like that, Casey. I swear I don't. Max felt totally awkward now, like he'd hurt Casey, but he had no idea how. He didn't do anything wrong. Why was she acting like this? Come on, Max said to her. We are still friends, right? Casey pushed him away and started walking back towards the others. Let's go. We have to stop Jadith and Siren, remember? Max threw his arms up and followed her back. So let's get on with it, Max said irritably. He turned to Ian. You do know how to drive this thing, right? Um, yeah, but there's a problem, Ian replied. We need the key. What key? Sky Chambers all have a signature jewel they use to start up. You know, like car keys. If we want to take Siren's Sky Chamber, we need to get a signature jewel. Max sagged. What does that mean? We have to find Siren? Yeah, Ian replied sheepishly. But that shouldn't be too hard. Everyone else is frozen, and we can whoosh, Sasha said. Casey rolled her eyes, and Sasha pretended not to notice. Okay, well, let's start looking, then, I guess, Max said. The foursome super-whooshed, as Ian had now dubbed it, all through Central Park and through the innards of several sky chambers, but didn't find Siren or Jadith or Philemon anywhere. They checked for signature jewels in each sky chamber. There were none. But there were plenty of centurions, and several times they encountered kids Ian and Sasha recognized as former serpents and mermaids. They were frozen in the act of performing various menial labor tasks, wearing bleak, hopeless expressions on their faces. They reminded Max of pictures he had seen of children in 19th century workhouses. Or maybe he had even seen them firsthand, he reminded himself. Maybe he had even been one of them once, for all he knew. I feel so bad for them, Sasha commented. You have no idea how horrible it is. How you think it will go on and on forever and never end. How you think you'll never laugh or play again. And that you don't even want to go on being alive anymore. But in all their searching, there was one strange trend they noticed. Most of the centurions seemed frozen in the act of heading off somewhere, drifting en masse towards an area towards the southern tip of the park, just beyond the edge of the ramble. Looks like something's going on over there, Sasha said. Yeah, wonder what's so interesting, Ian asked. As they approached, they could clearly see the centurions here were more relaxed. Many had their helmets off, some were drinking, and most were laughing and slapping each other on the back. Looks like a party or something, Max commented. They're not working, and it looks like, and Max's face scrunched up in bafflement at the strange concept. Almost like they're having fun. Ian shrugged. Well, even these guys have to get their jollies in sometime, I suppose. As they got closer to where the centurions were congregating, they came upon an outdoor amphitheater. Hundreds, if not thousands, of centurions packed the pavilion like golden sardines. 
Seating was raised in a bowl around a stage set into an orchestral hat shell down below. They passed a large bust of Beethoven, raised on a stone pedestal, glowering silently down on the proceedings beneath him. I wonder what in the world they could be watching, Max asked. The foursome superwooshed into the raised seating, gaining a better view of whatever it was. Ian's eyes went wide when he finally saw exactly who was on stage. I don't believe it. That's... that's... Planet Furious, Max finished, eyes popping out of his head. Max's favorite band, Planet Furious, was giving a rock concert for the Centurions, aliens from the planet Nibiru. There they were, Planet Furious, time frozen, in the flesh, on the stage. Johnny Jupiter, Sophisto, Frankie Mercury, and Sid Venus. And the Centurions were loving it, golden arms pumping and waving in the air, mouths open, singing along with the band. From one end of the amphitheater to the other, it was a packed-in sea of gold-clad audience members. There was even a mosh pit up front, and a few centurions body-surfing along the top of the crowd. But this, this is incredible, Max managed to spit out. They must have heated up the band and forced them to play. Those guys must really be wondering what the heck is going on. Look, Casey said suddenly, found him. They all turned to see where she was pointing. Across the amphitheater, in a balcony to the right of the stage, was Johnny's siren. Max's heart gave a little jump, like it had when he had originally seen Mr. Blister frozen in time back in Starlet. For a split second, it seemed that Siren was turning his head, moving, about to look right at them. But it was just his imagination. Siren was still as a statue. The four of them just stared wordlessly at him for a long moment. Huh. Wonder what old sandpaper puss here is up to? Ian said, and then showing off for Sasha, he zipped fearlessly across the top of the gold-clad audience, stepping from gold hand to gold head to gold hand again, like a crowd surfer. Then he sprang up, effortlessly, leaping the several floors to Siren's balcony. Ian stood beside the time-stop Siren for a moment and got his bearings. It was terrifying to be within arm's grasp of him, and it took several seconds for Ian to truly get used to the idea that Siren was trapped in time and couldn't actually touch him. Then, Ian focused on trying to figure out how best to search him. Siren's hands were planted firmly in his suit coat pockets, red gloved thumbs hooked over the sides. His ever-present jewel-clawing cane was leaning against the railing of the balcony. Ian chewed on his lip for a second and considered. Meanwhile, when the others saw that Siren hadn't magically come to life, they whooshed up to the balcony as well. It's so creepy seeing him like this, all still, Sasha commented. It's like he might just pop to life anyway. Yeah, I hear that, Max agreed. Knowing Siren, I almost wouldn't be surprised. But there was no sign at all that Siren could hear them. He looked like a wax museum version of himself. Ian grunted in annoyance. Siren's time-frozen suit jacket was like fabric made of steel. But the real difficulty seemed to be that Siren's hands themselves were just plain in the way. Ian was trying to heat the jacket up in time without somehow accidentally heating Siren up himself. Then he cringed as he put his hand in his siren's suit pocket, feeling around siren's gloved hands. His face fell. He's holding on to it, Ian announced. Doesn't that just figure? He's got his greedy little mitts wrapped right tight around it. He's wearing stupid red gloves, of course, which seems to make it worse for some reason. So what now? Max asked. Well, we can't get at it, Ian said sourly. Not without heating him up, and I for one don't vote for that. Not really my first choice, Max said, replied Sasha. Casey was silent. 
Ian backed out for a moment and tried to think it through again. That was when Sasha turned a little too quickly and tripped. Trying to regain her balance, she instinctively flailed an arm with all her might. But in the super pocket, her movements were amplified even more so than in the pocket, and she wasn't used to it yet. The flailing just exacerbated her stumbling. She panicked and slapped her arm hard against the wall. The equal and opposite reaction produced sent her sailing over the balcony, launching her high into the air and out directly over the crowd. Screaming, she fell. Ian reacted first. Sasha! he howled. Sasha flailed her limbs as the terror of her fall fully penetrated her mind. Her back was facing the ground. Even in the super pocket, she would likely break her back and probably die. Turn, she told her body, but it wouldn't go. She kicked and spun her arms wildly. But then, without warning, there was howling, raging noise all around her. Guitars, heavily amplified drum thumping, the deafening roar of a crowd. Golden arms held her. They had caught her, halted her descent. The centurion stared down into her face, seemingly as surprised as she was. He was moving. He wasn't frozen in time at all. In fact, the whole crowd was moving, thumping, bouncing up and down and clapping. She was at a rock concert with thousands of Newburian centurions. Colored flashing lights spun and drenched the twilight around her. The energy of the crowd was palpable in the air. Sasha looked down at her wrist. The bracelet was missing. It must have fallen off her wrist, and thus she had fallen out of the super pocket and back into normal pocket time. Oh no. Her sudden appearance out of nowhere had been instantly noticed by Johnny Siren. He snapped to his feet like a marionette jerked to life, eyes on fire, and grasped the railing of his balcony with both hands. That Ceranus doesn't miss a trick, Sasha thought. The centurion looked up questioningly at him. Siren briskly motioned for him to bring her. He snatched his cane and disappeared through a curtain in the back of his box seat and began descending to meet them. Planet Furious howled and wailed on stage. They had just launched into a song Sasha had heard on the radio a thousand times. As the centurion jostled his way through the other dancing centurions with Sasha in his arms, she thought she saw a blur whiz by on her left and then again on her right. Then suddenly the centurion righted her, placing her on her feet. Without warning, she found herself standing in front of Johnny Siren. This was Nightmare Incarnate. His eyes probed her. His scarred and slashed visage betrayed only mild surprise at her presence. Sasha felt ice-cold dread lance through her soul. Just a moment ago, her slavery under Jadith had been a memory, a faraway thing, something in the past. Now it was back, startlingly thrust into the present once again. She shrank inside of herself, tried to hide inside of her own head. Miss Foy, Siren chuckled. Interesting. When last I saw you, you were on your way to pay a visit to the infernal Mr. E. Now suddenly, here you are, falling out of the sky. Curious. I would wager the two are connected. Sasha's eyes began to fill with tears. No, not this again. Please, anything but this. Tell me, where, oh where, did you come from? And where presently are Masters Quick and Keating? 
and that insipid little muppet, Casey. Sasha's eyes whirled around involuntarily. Come on, where are you guys? She thought. They're still here somewhere, right? She wasn't sure of that, though. Please, please be here. Siren stepped closer, grabbed Sasha by the chin. But most importantly, what did Mr. E tell you about the pendant? His fingers dug into the flesh of her cheeks like a vise. Siren's eyes flared and old madness danced in them. He looked capable of anything. But just then, Ian appeared standing next to Siren. He was brandishing his serp blade. Hey, crater face! Pick on someone your own size! Siren's entire expression changed in an instant. His lips snarled and his eyes widened. Too many things he didn't understand were happening at once. Max popped out of the air on the other side of Siren. You heard him, pockhead! But at the sight of Max, Siren was suddenly beyond furious. You! Max and Ian both became a flurry of fists and kicks, two blurs knocking centurions left and right. Gold-clad bodies were punched, thrown into the air, knocked back with tremendous force. It was as if two furies had been unleashed in their midst. The surging crowd of centurions bouncing to the music became distracted as they noticed the fellows suddenly being tossed high in the air. Something was wrong. Planet Furious kept on playing, but even they saw that something was amiss. They strained to make out what it was from the stage. Centurions grappled for Max and Ian, but they were preternaturally fast, easily dodged the sea of eager hands clutching at them. Arms twisted, bones snapped. Centurions went down howling in pain with bent and broken armor. Siren whirled and growled, now swinging his cane wildly, trying desperately to swat the motion blurs that buzzed him like menacing pixies. Max suddenly appeared perfectly still in front of Siren, and smiled. Seething with fury, Siren cried out a bloodthirsty yell, and cocked his arm back with the cane. Howling, Siren brought it down like a hammer, a murderous blow with the blood-red ruby aimed squarely at Max's skull. He meant to bludgeon him. But the cane simply vanished the split second before it connected with Max's head. Air whizzed, and Siren felt something pop him in the forehead. Blood trickled down his nose. Then the cane was inexplicably back in his hand. Max grinned. Siren howled. He knew then that Max had just moved in a time frame too fast for him to see, and that it had been he who had cracked him in the head with his own cane. Then Max vanished before his sight. In rage, Siren grasped his forehead in pain and wheeled, looking for Sasha. But she too was nowhere to be found. She had completely disappeared. Then Max appeared on the stage. Johnny Jupiter and Frankie Mercury were leaning towards him, straining to hear what he was saying. Guys, uh, hang in there. We're working on getting you out of here. Just a little bit longer, okay? The band members nodded numbly, stunned. Okay, what in the bleeding hell is going on? Johnny asked with a thick British accent. He was scared. Who are these goldenrod blokes? I, I don't have time to explain, Johnny. But it's really great to meet you, Max sputtered in awe he was actually talking to the guys from Planet Furious, despite the circumstances. Okay, cool. I, I gotta go. Then Max was gone in a streak of super speed. Mayhem ensued. The band stopped playing. The sound of feedback and random open guitar chords and hum filled the air. Word had spread about the kids, and infuriated, humiliated centurions were looking everywhere in the amphitheater for them. Siren whirled and cursed, looking for answers. What had the kids been doing here? 
And how were they moving so fast? Then inspiration seized him. A possible answer formed in his mind. His hands plunged into his suit pockets. They were empty. Siren broke into a mad sprint like a possessed man away from the concert. He sped through the ramble, kicking at the leaves and growth as though they personally offended him. The sound of his own footsteps mocked him. When he emerged out onto the great lawn, breathing heavy, he cursed and cursed like a wild thing frothing at the mouth, just as he had thought. His sky chamber was missing. His prize, the pendant, those kids were stealing it from him. He would not be able to hand it to Jadith. She would not grant him eternal life. Siren let out a howl of frustration. A centurion came up behind him just then. It was the same one who had caught Sasha. His armor was bent from kicks in several places, and he was dirty and bloody. Lord Siren, he said. What? Siren bellowed, unable to contain himself. The centurion held up an ornate silver bracelet with a blue gem set into it. I do not know if this means anything, but this trinket fell off that slave girl as I caught her. Siren understood immediately. He snatched the bracelet from the centurion in one motion and snapped it firmly on his wrist. Instantly, the whole world froze in time around him. The centurion became still as a wax statue. Sounds everywhere ceased. Sky chambers froze in the air above him. There wasn't a moment to lose. Not even a minute. Not even a second. Time was the killer. Always the killer. Aboard the Sky Chamber, Ian, Max, Casey, and Sasha had already made their way halfway across the Atlantic Ocean towards the resting place of the pendant. Inside, Ian's hand gripped an Umphalos used to pilot the Nuberian craft. While he did so, he was in a kind of a geese which melded his mind with the physicality of the ship. The hull became his skin, his eyes, his ears. Sasha sat next to Ian, shotgun, just as she had called. It had taken Ian a few moments to get control of the vessel, despite the gift of piloting knowledge from Enki. He had bumped it into the side of one of the buildings on 6th Street on the way out of New York, and then scraped the bottom against a roof just before he hit the open water. The sky chamber had lurched and jumped embarrassingly, like a kid driving a car for the first time. But then Ian seemed to get the hang of it, and the past 15 minutes had been quite smooth. He had accelerated to top speed out over the Atlantic. Towards the shores of Scotland, with sure geographic knowledge of where he was going, Enki had put it all in his head. Casey, Max, and Sasha found they could watch the outside world through a giant viewing jewel set into the middle of the bridge. It was a polished, clear sphere some 20 feet across, and it showed a full panoramic view of everything happening outside the sky chamber. Clouds whizzed by, and the ripples on the dappled sea sailed beneath them like they were the very breeze itself. While Ian focused on piloting the sky chamber, Max filled Sasha in on what had happened from their point of view. When Sasha had slipped and fallen, her flailing had caused the bracelet to come flying off, exactly as she had guessed. At that precise moment, to Max, Casey, and Ian, she had become frozen in time herself, just like the Centurions. Thus, she remained suspended in mid-air several feet above the crowd. But try as they might, they couldn't find Sasha's bracelet. It must have kept moving in the super pocket even after it fell off her wrist and rolled off somewhere. Even in a sea of still centurions, it proved to be a needle in a haystack and they just couldn't find it. Ian made a crack about how Umphalos, like the bracelet and the pendant, always seemed to be getting lost, and even with a pocket, no one could find them. 
Max, Ian, and Casey then spent the next few hours in the super pocket discussing what to do. Casey had been extremely sulky about this, as they were paying an awful lot of attention to Sasha, but Max left that part out when he was relating the story to Sasha. After many suggestions that wouldn't work for one reason or another, Ian finally countered that maybe they could bend the way the bracelets work. If time was just an illusion, and it was their minds that were really providing the pocket effect, as Enki had told them, then there ought to be a way to zip in and out of the super pocket, but retain the benefits of super pocket powers if they discipline their perception. It ought to be possible. It was a question of will, of belief, of getting the knack of it. With the bracelets to help shape their awareness, Ian felt it should be accomplishable. He spent the next day trying, and sure enough, little by little, he got the hang of it, and Max did also. He would enter normal pocket time for just a sliver of a slice of a second, and then come back into the super pocket. Pocket, super pocket, pocket, super pocket. Casey wanted no part of it, so she just slept. It had been almost two days since they had lost Sasha by this time. Finally, when they felt ready, they positioned themselves near the Centurion and entered normal pocket time, but at a very slow down speed. They dragged the Centurion over about a foot to the left. They pushed his arms up. They tilted his head back. Then they waited. The Centurion had caught her, just as they hoped. And paradoxically, that act had made it possible for Ian to pick Siren's pocket. For in his surprise, Siren had instinctively removed his hands from the suit coat. With the signature jewel in hand, all that was left to do was to rescue Sasha. They had found, by accident, with the very centurion they had moved into position to catch Sasha, that if they touched someone skin to skin while wearing a bracelet, they brought that person with them into the super pocket. All Ian had to do was grab Sasha's hand, and she entered the same time frame as the rest of them. Once inside of the sky chamber, her pocket powers didn't work, and thus there seemed to be a separate kind of internal continuum anyway. He could let go of her hand and she stayed in the same time frame without needing a bracelet of her own. And the rest, of course, she knew. Together, the foursome had made their way back to Siren's sky chamber. After checking it for unwanted, unintentional passengers, they had taken off in search of the pendant. Once they were airborne, Ian insisted on a new name for the ship. A proper name. Something better than bloody Siren's ex-sky chamber. All ships have them, you know. At least in England they do. And I've thought of one. Cloud Rider. What do you guys think? Sasha nodded enthusiastically. I like it. It's a good name. Casey nodded grumpily in agreement. Cloud Rider it is then. Almost five minutes into the journey, the centurion they had missed in their search groggily made his way up to the bridge. He had been sleeping in his quarters, and they had missed him in their search of the ship. The centurion was quickly subdued by Ian nonetheless, who encased him in a force field generated by the sky chamber. And so now... A lone, sulking centurion sat on the bridge with them. So, what's your name? Max asked him. Hey! The centurion replied. What? Hey! The centurion enunciated. Hey! Max exploded in the laughter. What kind of a name is Hey? Nobody's named Hey! The centurion glowered. Hey! 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 But this only made Max, Sasha, and even Casey laugh harder at this unintentional humor. <laughs> Where are your brothers? He and who? And even Ian was starting to giggle a little bit as he resisted breaking his concentration. Pretty soon, though, a kind of unstoppable, ticklish laughter spread throughout the foursome. Or, huh, Casey added to new peals of laughter. No, it is he! 
the centurion insisted loudly, not understanding why this was funny. All right, all right. <laughs> Your name really can't be He. That's a sound, not a name. That's like me saying my name is Snort. And there was a new eruption of laughter. Ian was having trouble concentrating now. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Enough, you guys. Leave He <laughs> alone. But even Ian couldn't help a fresh giggle peal from escaping when he said He. The next one who says it, you know, the word, is going out the airlock. There was a pregnant pause, and then he went, he. You're listening to The Pocket and the Pendant by Mark Jeffrey, read by the author. Produced by Mark Jeffrey in association with Michael and Evo's Dragon Page and Podiobooks.com. The full book is available in Podiobook format at Podiobooks.com. The full print version is available at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, Lulu.com, or from the book's website and blog at www.pocketandpendant.com.